0: So last week we saw uh, God bring deliverance through Barak despite um, his unwillingness in many respects to participate in God's plan of redemption. Today we get a song, something of the, uh, the hit song of that day that, that Deborah and Barak composed following this victory. You can think of it this way, um, last year when the Bucks, win the championship uh, of the NBA, what happens, uh, what is like the next week or the next few days, is then they have a parade in the Deer District to celebrate, something of a victory lap. So you have the championship bucks in six, I think it was, and then you have the Deer District parade where all Milwaukee comes out on the street and Giannis is there holding the trophy. And you can think of chapter five uh, relation to chapter four in a similar way. In chapter four, we have the victory itself. We have the battle And then in chapter 5, we get the victory song. We get something of the parade. We have the victory lap. And what we'll find is that what this passage is communicating to us, which this passage wants to, to tell us this morning, what God is saying, is we see that we ought to praise God because he saves through the willingness of his people despite not all being willing. Praise God. Because he saves through the willingness of his people, even though not all of his people are, in fact, willing. And so what we'll do this morning as a way of dissecting this rather large psalm is, first we're going to look at the situation in which the people of Israel found themselves. Then we're going to look at the solution that God provided to that situation. And then we're going to look at a contrast. So the, the situation, the solution, and then a contrast. So first, the situation. The situation. If you look at me, look with me at Judges 5, 4 through 5, verses 4 through 5, we see this. Yahweh, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before Yahweh, even Sinai before Yahweh, the God of Israel. We see that as God marches out, we get this vision of God and the creation around him comes unglued. That as God is marching out in battle, in other words, the enemy doesn't stand a chance. Even creation is trembling. He's bringing the rain clouds with him to dump the floodwaters. Even the God of Sinai bringing up This idea of the exodus, the God who brought them out of Egypt. This is the God who marches out and creation trembles before this God. And yet, even as creation trembles before this God who marches out on behalf of his people, when we continue now into verses 6 through 8, we see God's people are trembling under their oppression. In the days of Shamgar. Who is was one of the judges that we saw earlier, son of Anath, in the days of Jael. Okay, that's who we saw in chapter 4. Notice how he describes this time period. The highways were abandoned. The travelers kept to the byways. You didn't want to go on the street. It was a dangerous time. People weren't traveling. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. Notice here in verse 8, when new gods were chosen, we've seen this throughout the book, that Israel does what is evil in the sight of the Lord, going after the Baals and the different idols. Well, what's the consequence of that? When when new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. One of the curses of the covenant that God promised his people that if you go after other gods, you will be subject to oppression and war and that's exactly what was happening. And so was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? It's likely that uh, Jabin um, through Sisera is, is maybe outlying, um the weapons. And so we even saw this with Shamgar who, who has to kill with, a, with a, what does it say in verse, or in chapter three? It says he actually strikes down the Philistines with an ox code. Weapons are sparse because they're under oppression. If you're oppressing people, you don't want them to be able to form weapons to, to revolt. And so this is a dire time and a dire situation in which Israel finds herself. And yet, even as the people tremble before their oppressors, they have a God in which creation trembles as he marches out on their behalf. And so we expect a solution to this problem. And what is that solution? Well, we find on the one hand, it's God himself acting directly on their behalf. We saw God marching out for battle, bringing the rain clouds with him. Now look at verses 19 through 22 with me. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Ta'anak by the waters of Megiddo, They got no spoils of silver. They didn't win. They didn't get any spoils. From heaven, the stars fought. God causes the stars to fight on behalf of his people. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. And here we see why God is bringing the rain clouds. The torrent of Kishon, that river, sweeps them away in their chariots. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse, horse's hooves with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. These horses run away, fleeing from the battle. And so we see God intervening. How, is, how does God resolve their predicament? How does he rescue them from, his, from their oppression? He directly intervenes miraculously. As we saw in chapter 4, uh, God causes them to go into a panic, remember? God causes them uh, to, 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 to be stirred up, He routes them, it says. But the other piece of this solution is not only does God act directly, sort of divine intervention and miraculously, but also He delivers His people, we 'll see, a big theme in this song is He delivers His people by means of their own willingness to fight. That certain people offered themselves willingly in this fight. So we we read verses 4 through 8. Now look at the very last line, verse 9 of that little section. My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, notice this, who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless Yahweh. Praise God Because the commanders in Israel offered themselves willingly to rescue the people. Or if we look at the very beginning of this song, verse 2 and 3, oftentimes songs in scripture, they have an intro and they have a conclusion that kind of summarize the theme, the main topic of the song. We get that here as well in verse 2 and 3. We get the introduction that shows us the theme. Verse 2, that the leaders took the lead in Israel that the people, they offered themselves willingly, bless Yahweh, hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, listen up, rulers, to Yahweh I will sing, I will make a melody to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Why, why are we singing, why are we praising God? Because God saved through the willingness of his own people, the leaders taking the lead, the people offering themselves willingly in the fight, We see this again in in verses 10 and 11. We we see this theme come up. Verse 10, Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, that is like the noble people, or you who walk by the way, that is the average person. Tell of it, all peoples, in other words, to the sound of musicians at the watering places. There they repeat. What are they going to repeat? What are they going to sing? What are they going to tell? The righteous triumphs of Yahweh then notice, not only is it the righteous triumphs of Yahweh, the one who wins in battle, but that's parallel to this next line, the righteous triumphs of the villagers in Israel. if you know Hebrew Hebrew poetry, it works off of parallels where the lines are supposed to mutually interpret one another, kind of like two speakers uh, giving you stereo music. They work together. And so you understand the righteous triumphs of Yahweh as happening through the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. God is saving through the willingness of his own people, through the, through, through the, through the uh, rising up to, to throw off the Canaanites, to throw off Jabin, of the people themselves. And you'll notice this even in the, the interesting link of language between this, this idea of marching. If you notice, as, as TJ read the passage for us, we th- saw this, this language of marching occur occasionally, we saw it first in verse 4 when Yahweh marches out and he causes creation to come unglued. We, we picture God coming on the scene and he's marching out for battle. And then what do we see? As we look in the end of verse 11, the part we didn't read and following, we see, then down to the gates march too. Well, previously we saw it was Yahweh who was marching, but now it's the people of Yahweh are marching. God marches out for battle by causing his people to march out for battle, in other words. Verse 12, awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. And then we get this list of all the different tribes who come out to battle and fight for Yahweh. As Yahweh marches out, so they march out. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of Yahweh marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Maker, marched down the commanders. And from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Look down at verse 18. Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to death. Naphtali too on the heights of the field. And so the people come out for battle. And so the, 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 I think the overall claim of this passage is that we ought to praise God who saves through the willingness of his people. Again, as I said However, if we're we're thinking about this passage in context, in light of what we already saw in chapter 4, there's a part of us, I think, that we start to say, the willingness of God's people? Like, really? Is that what we saw in chapter 4 with Barak? In other words, there's a bit of irony here. The song is going over and over about the willingness of God's people, and that's how God saved, and yet we saw with Barak that that wasn't really entirely the case. You see, Judges 4 recounts God working redemption despite a rather unwilling Barak. Deborah, if you remember, she had to repeatedly prod Barak, and even when Sisera was eventually killed, it was no thanks to Barak. Jael received the glory. And this clearly communicated to us, as we saw last week, that salvation belongs to God and God alone. He will save us despite ourselves, despite our own unwillingness. And so we come, when we come to verse 2, the very opening of the song, we see, we see verse 1, that's then saying Deborah and Barak, and we get to verse 2, that the leaders took the lead. I mean, man, that hits you with some irony. Like, they took the lead? Barak? We're talking about the same guy? The people offered themselves willingly. Even this idea of the song, when it talks about then saying Deborah and Barak, it kind of gives you the idea, the, the title gives you the idea that this is like a duet. Okay? They're both singing it together. They're leading the choir of Israel to sing this together. But although verse 1 says that, it says that the song is also uh, Barak's, When you look at the song itself, it seems to indicate that it's actually more Deborah's song and not so much Barak's. So if you look at verse 7, halfway or at the end of verse 7, it says, You see Deborah speaking in the first person. I, Deborah, arose, a mother in Israel. She's the one talking in this song. Or look then at verse 13. Again, we see the people of the Lord march down for me. It's first person. It's not us. It's me. It seems like this is Deborah singing the song. And so, even in the song, not just in the story, chapter four, but even in the song of victory following it, we get a picture of Barack. Like, where it's almost like I'm imagining a band, like, we have our music team playing, and Barack's over there, kind of like, Debra has like forced him, kind of like pulled him along and said, okay, you sit here at least. And he's kind of like sitting there, like kind of mumbling the song. And he's barely coming along in the band. And, and, and Debra is the one leading the song. He's like barely included. And yet he gets his name on the copyright somehow. He's getting dragged along even in the song of victory. Deborah's carrying him through. And so chapters 4 and 5 work in concert then. In both, we see that God is ultimately responsible for working salvation, despite the unwillingness of many of his people, like Barak. But through the willingness of his remnant, the willingness of some of his people. And this gets showcased as well. This theme of this contrast then gets showcased in the psalm. In the song, And so look at, for example, chapter 5, verses 11 through 19. As we already read some of this, I want you to notice now, we saw some of the tribes that came out. We saw like Ephraim and, and Zebulun and Naphtali. They're coming out. They're marching down as Yahweh marches out. But now notice the part that we kind of skipped over. Partway through verse, verse 15. Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Like, they thought about coming, but they decided to stay back with their flocks. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. They didn't cross over to help. Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. And so there's this juxtaposition. Not only is the psalm then praising and sort of uh, congratulating, commending, you might say, these tribes who did march out, but they're put right next to these tribes who kept from coming out. It's shaming them. There's scorn involved. And so that's why in verse 13, when it says, then down marched notice, it says, the remnant, that is not all the people, but a select few. Some of the people. Came. At the end of the psalm, we get this contrast as well, where we see in verse 23, verse 23, it says, Curse Miraz, says the angel of Yahweh. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly. So it's it's presumably a city. There's these inhabitants. Why is this city to be cursed? Because they did not come to the help of Yahweh, to help to the help of Yahweh against the mighty. But then notice, on the one hand, we get cursed. We get Miraz, the city that doesn't help, presumably. It's being cursed. Now contrast that immediately in verse 24. Most blessed among, of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. And then it goes on to give this detailed description of her victory. And it closes with this kind of... Uh, scornful, almost mockery of Sisera's mother who's, who's waiting for Sisera to come home. She says, what's taking him so long? And of course, the, the, the women beside her, her wisest princesses, they kind of decide to console themselves. Well, he must be just taking a long time to gather up all the spoil. Even this idea, this, this horrible idea of like, well, for every man, there must be a woman to, to abuse. They're just taking their time, abusing the women, and gathering the spoil. Which, of course, only heightens the victory of God over over Sisera. But there's a contrast, then, between miraz, cursed, and jail, most blessed. Just like there's a contrast between the tribes who marched out and the tribes who did not. It's meant to emphasize, some were willing, and some were not. And so, again, this song is here to teach us that we ought to praise God who saves through the willingness of his people despite not all being willing. And so as we think about a passage like this and how we respond to its message, praising God who saves through the willingness of his people despite not all being willing. On the on the one hand, this passage serves as a call to be a willing participant in what God is doing in his redemptive program. So as we see here in this song, we see God, we're in, across the book of Judges, we see God working his plan of redemption uh, in, in the particular context of Israel and, and, and the sin and the evil that was around them in the form of these Canaanites with the unique call to remove the Canaanites. But God is still at work in that plan of redemption, of eradicating evil from this world beginning in our own hearts what Christ has done on the cross. And so God is still calling people to be willing participants in what he is doing, in his plan of renewal and redemption in this world. And it's an implicit rebuke to those who simply want to stay on the sidelines, to be mere bystanders in what God is doing. Those who participate are said to be blessed. Those who do not are said to be cursed. And I think this is an encouragement to us too as the church that as we are on mission, as we like to say sometimes, it reminds us that our mission is first and foremost God's mission. He is the one who marches out. We march out in our mission only because God first and foremost is marching out on his. And that means the mission doesn't hinge on us. We take our mission seriously because it's God's mission. And that means it's a serious mission, but we don't take ourselves so seriously because on the same token, it's God's mission. And it ultimately doesn't hinge on us. He brings us in to participate in his own triumph. It's ultimately his triumph. It's ultimately his victory that he guarantees we simply get to participate in what he is doing. And so because God is going to be successful, because he is triumphing, because he is going to win this battle, that's an encouragement for us to get a part of it. We don't need to sit on the sidelines. Let's join in what God is doing in this world to work redemption and renewal. If you look at verse 31, we also get an indication of how we're supposed to respond, I think. As we saw the the beginning of the psalm introducing the major theme, now we look at verse 31 where we see the closing. In many ways, one of the big takeaways we're supposed to have. Verse 31, it says this. So may all your enemies perish, O Yahweh. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. So Yahweh's enemies are going to perish, but his friends will be strengthened. They will rise like the sun, which cannot be stopped. The sun rises. And so, as we have gotten a contrast between those who are willing and those who are unwilling, so now we get a contrast between God's friends and God's enemies. And this This closing to this song reminds me of Psalm 1, if you want to turn to Psalm 1, a famous psalm that we talk about quite a bit at Crossway, how the wise person is like a tree planted by waters, but I want you to notice how this psalm ends. This is this is a psalm about the blessed man who meditates on God's word comparing him with those who do not the fool says in verse 5 and 6 therefore the wicked notice they will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous for Yahweh knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish it reminds me of this verse because we similarly hear in judges 5:31 the enemies of God are perishing and the friends of God, though, they are strengthened. They endure just like the wise man. God knows his way, but the wicked, they will not stand in the judgment. They will perish. Someone supposedly once asked Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War if, God, if he thought God was on his side. And Lincoln supposedly responded, Sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. Because God's side is always right. And God always wins. And so I think after going through this whole psalm, if we were to read, you read this again, you, you start to see the contrast between those who are willing and those who are not willing. And you come to verse 31 It's meant to, you're meant to sort of leave with that question. Well, am I one of the friends of God or am I one of the enemies who perish? It serves as a challenge to the Israelites' idolatry, right? Look over at verse 8 of the song. We talked about new gods being chosen. What what made them enemies of God in effect when they experienced the curses? They, they, they did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, and God handed them over. He sold them to their oppressors. So part of what it means to avoid being an enemy is to avoid that sort of idolatry. It's a challenge to them. God is victorious. He can bring oppression and he can throw off oppression. But those who are his enemies, they're going to perish. It's the friends of God those who are loyal to him, those who willingly submit to him that will endure. And I also think that this contrast between enemies and friends correlates to the issue of willingness, as I said. The friends of God are those who submitted to him, who willingly participated in what he was doing. And so it makes me think of our Savior, Jesus, in the Gospels, who in Mark 8, for example, says, If anyone will come after me. If anyone will willingly follow me, he's going to have to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That, that being a willing participant in what God is doing, it is costly. It does involve sacrifice. That these, in verse 18, Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to death. To participate in what God is doing, it costs us something. And yet Jesus continues... For whoever would try to save their life, they're going to lose it. The enemies of God perish. But whoever actually loses his life, who gives it up to God for my sake and the gospels, that's the person who will save it. The friends of God are like the sun who rise in his might. But ultimately, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we are not exactly that willing sort of people. We're more like Barack than we would probably want to admit. In our sins, we are not willing participants in God's program of redemption. Even Barak, he, he didn't want to get on board with, God was, with, with what God was doing, even when it meant his own deliverance. And as Paul writes about all of us in Romans 3, none of us is righteous, not a single one of us. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All of us have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. Like Barack, we want no part of it if left to ourselves, even when it means our own rescue. We're running in the opposite direction of our own good. And the deliverance that we've read about here in Judges 5. This is only a small glimpse of the greater deliverance that we need in Christ. I mean, even if you go to the next chapter, in chapter 6, right after this, what's going to happen? God's people are once again going to go right back into doing evil in the sight of the Lord. This deliverance doesn't break the cycle. Just like the sacrifices of the Old Testament system always need to be, needed to be renewed year after year. It's ultimately pointing forward. Ultimately, we need a greater and a more permanent deliverance than being freed from the oppression of the Canaanite overlords. We need deliverance from sin itself that brought on those oppressors. We need rescue from the full range of sin and its consequences. But the problem is, if if we're found to be unwilling, if we look at ourselves and we see Barak in ourselves, Through whom will God accomplish this redemption that we so desperately need? Who will be the willing servant from among God's people to deliver them from the oppression of sin? Where can God find such a willing and capable person from among his people? The answer, of course, is he can't. And that's why he himself became one of us. To be that willing servant on our behalf. God himself becomes flesh. He becomes a human being. And he becomes then the willing partner that was always needed. As God says in Philippians 2, that even as we were trapped in our own disobedience, Christ was obedience. As Philippians 2 says, who, though he was in the very form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped and held on to, but he emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the very point of death for us, even death on a cross for our sakes. We see this in his earthly ministry where Jesus foretells of his death to his disciples. And after telling them this, the Gospel of Luke says that Jesus set his face To Jerusalem. Jesus knew exactly why he had come. He understood his mission. That Jesus's death wasn't thrust upon him like some sort of sneak attack that caught him off guard. No, Jesus set his eyes to Jerusalem. He predicts his death and he sets his eyes to Jerusalem. Jesus was locked in for us. He went willingly. And think about the garden of Gethsemane. The night before Jesus' death, where we get to hear Jesus pleading with his Father in incredible physical anguish, even sweating drops of blood. Father, if you are willing, if there's any other way possible, remove this cup from me. And yet rather than this moment showing us Christ's unwillingness, Gethsemane is actually the height of his willingness. Because notwithstanding that sort of natural recoil of, uh, towards what lay before him, Jesus is resolute. He says, nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. And so Jesus goes willingly as Isaiah 53 predicted. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. And there on the cross, Jesus triumphed over sin, bearing our penalty in our place. That is for all those who trust in what Jesus has done, not leaning on anything else for their rescue. As verse 26 in our passage today says, it talks about jail crushing the head of Sisera. She crushed his head. I don't know about you, but my mind recalls God's promise to Eve in Genesis 3.15. I think, I think we're meant to recall that promise, the similar language there, where, where God says that one day the seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent Satan. Here, Jael, a woman from Eve's line is crushing the head of Sisera, the enemy of God's people at that time. But one day Christ, the ultimate seed of Eve, He has come and he has crushed the greatest enemy of God's people, defeating Satan by crushing sin and death for us. And again, this is the promise that is held out to each and every one of us. This is the salvation that each and every one of us needs. To the believer, keep trusting in this promise. To anyone here who is not yet a believer in Christ, who has not yet put your faith in Christ, do so today. And so we praise God like the psalm calls us to. The psalm is, is the choir master calling us to praise God because he triumphs by accomplishing our salvation through the willingness of Jesus Christ. As we saw in this song, it says to bless the Lord. I will sing, I will make a melody break out in song. That should be an instinctual response you feel right now after we, after we think about what Christ has done for us. Praise God that he has in fact saved us as the psalm says to the lord we will sing oh hear kings hear oh princes we will make a melody to yahweh our god because christ has offered himself willingly praise god and our praiseful our, our, our praiseful disposition should overflow in a proclamation of that praise to other people I want you to see that, that theme in this song as well. Where not only are they singing, not only is there a, a, a call to bless God, but in verse 3, hero kings, hero princes, or verse 10 and 11, tell of it, they repeat it, that we proclaim this to other people, we proclaim this to an onlooking world as an outflow of our very own experience of salvation. As 1 Peter 2 says, that we are a chosen race using the language of Israel for who the church is, we're we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, exactly what Israel was supposed to be. And one of the things that Israel was supposed to do was to be a light to the nations. And so that's what the church does as we've experienced redemption, just as Israel experiences redemption out of Egypt. So we've now experienced the greater exodus in Christ. And now we are to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you have experienced salvation, it should outflow in wanting to share it with others. If you truly are convicted that the gospel is true, if you really believe that the gospel is true, how can you not share it with others? If you truly have joy in your own salvation, how do you not want to share that with others? And lastly, I think this song wants to give us confidence in what God is doing, confidence in God's redemptive work. I want to park out on this little line in verse 21 for the rest of our time here. At the end of verse 21, notice what it says March on, my soul, with might. We've seen this language of marching, right? We've seen God marching out, then we saw the tribes march out, and now the last thing to march out is our souls. March on, my soul, with might. Now, what does it look like for us to tell it? That's like we're talking to our own souls there. March on, my soul. What does that look like for us to tell our souls, march on? March on, soul. Is that sort of like, you know, self-motivation? Like, march on, soul. You can do this. You got it, soul. No. Notice where this is placed. It comes at the end of verses 19 through 21, which has all been talking about what God is doing to bring victory. God is fighting with the stars. He's causing the torrent of Kishon to sweep them away. And at the end of that isn't like, oh, you've done a good job, soul, so keep marching on, buddy. No, it's march on my soul because of what God has done. It's a response to what God is doing. Our souls can be encouraged and we can preach to our souls, march on, not because of anything in us, but because it's God who marches out for us. Our soul marches out following God marching out on our behalf. I want you to feel why that's so important. Like, Consider what it would be like if the truth of this passage was not real. What would the world be like if God didn't accomplish deliverance despite our unwillingness? What would our own lives be like? We we wouldn't be able to tell our soul to march on. I mean, we could, but there wouldn't be a lot of weight to it. Things would be rather hopeless. We would have no guarantee about where things are going. We'd have no guarantee that what we're doing as a church is doing any good, let alone would there even be a church. What this means is that we can take confidence, though, because this is true, we can take confidence in the surety of God's redemptive work. That is, he marches out, he always wins. He's never defeated. He's got an undefeated record in what he sets out to do. As Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, And I tell you, you Peter, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And so we can willingly engage. We can be willing participants in what God is doing in terms of our, our mission to share the gospel with the lost, in terms of our ministry to one another as a church, in terms of our own lives growing in sanctification, growing in the eradication of sin, all born out of a confidence that what God is doing will be successful. If you didn't have confidence that, these things, confidence that these things would be successful, you'd probably be far less likely to engage in these things. You'd kind of have one foot in, one foot out. Not really sure it's like playing the stock market, right? You're always kind of, you want to. if you have stocks, you probably want to pay attention to see if maybe they're going to go down. You're kind of one foot in, one foot out. But if you knew for sure, you're all in. And if we know for sure that what God is doing will be successful, we're all in. How does this message challenge maybe how we currently think about things, our current operating frameworks or viewpoints. So I think, I think it's easy for us intellectually to confess that God is sovereign, that he's in control of all things, but on a functional level, I think it's a lot easier um, to, to, to disbelieve that, to, to struggle that God is actually, he actually has providence over every aspect of our lives that he actually has control over this world. Sometimes it feels like things are just out of control, like maybe we're really the masters of the destiny of this world. Things are chaotic. And so we start to disbelieve that really God is, has control of, of, of all this world that seems out of control. We disbelieve that God will in fact triumph, that what he is doing will succeed, even in the small details of our lives. And I, part, of the, part of the nature of this of this line of, of marching on my soul it assumes that we need our souls actually need to be told that right the fact that it says march on my soul it assumes that my soul your soul like needs to be told to march on with might so one are the times when are maybe some of the more notable times when i think our souls need to be told to march on i think maybe when we are discouraged well, broad category, discouraged at what we think God might be doing in the world. So one, that might be the church. Maybe we're discouraged by the state of the church. And it causes us to start to doubt what God is doing. Is God really at work in the church? We need to be reminded of who God is, the God who marches out from Seir, the God of Sinai who comes and creation comes unglued. This is his bride. Christ has purchased her. He will renew her. To have confidence at what God is doing in the church, despite all of her current blemishes maybe when we're discouraged by the state of our world we're discouraged by the evils we're discouraged by this despot in russia who's attacking innocent people we're discouraged by by children in foster care who, who, who aren't who aren't helped. we're discouraged by the state of our schools you name it and we can kind of get bogged down and feel like well is god going to do anything We need to remember who our God is. We need to remember our God always wins. And we say to our souls, march on. Not because of anything in us. We can't deal with that stuff. We can't make that stuff go away. But God eventually will come and he will win. Or maybe when we're discouraged by our own sin. The daily fight with sin. And it just doesn't seem to go away. And it's not going to go away until we die. And we say, march on my soul. God owns the victory. March on. As I was meditating on this verse, my mind went to the hymn, uh, This Is My Father's World. Do you guys know that hymn, This Is My Father's World? Sounds really similar to the Lord of the Rings music. Um, But it goes like this in, in two of the verses at the end. It says, This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart or my soul, we might say, be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. So I want you to just envision what would it look like if as a church, we were characterized by the message of this passage. Truly believing that God works redemption through his willing people. And we offer ourselves willingly to God. What fruit would come of a church believing this truth together? More boldness in engaging the mission together. More confidence and therefore more willingness. The confidence we have in God, I think, spurs on our own willingness. And what is maybe... One change in your life that you would make. Maybe one risk that you would be willing to take if you trusted this truth more than you do right now. How might it even alter the course of your life? Maybe your primary goal in life. If this was true, if this was your operating system for how you view the world, that God is on a mission that ultimately will succeed and it will shape eternity. And every week as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a sign and it's a pledge assuring us of this promise. It's a sign that is, it it signifies the gospel. It's a picture of the gospel. It's an illustration of the gospel. We see the bread and, and the juice representing Christ's body and blood given over for us on our behalf. But it's not only a sign, it's also a pledge. It's God giving us these signs as a promise to us. That when we take these things, we are, to be, we are to hear God speaking. Just as we hear the gospel preached from the pulpit, we then hear God's word speaking through the elements, so to say. Preaching to us the gospel that is for you, believer. That just as we want to preach to our soul, march on, soul, with might. So the Lord's Supper speaks to our soul. March on. On soul, with might. Every week when we take the Lord's Supper, God is telling our souls through the Lord's Supper, march on. Jesus said, one day I will partake of the vine with you. There's a future element to this too. We're looking to the day when all things will be made right. It tells us that God has marched out on our behalf. We march out and our souls can be told to march out because God has marched out on our behalf.